don't write a $25,000 check or a $10,000 check or even a $50,000 check and then go do your own thing and tell the entrepreneur, hey, just report back to me every quarter and let me know how you're doing. The way you win in this game is to be active in these businesses. It's where these entrepreneurs need you the most. And I can tell you this, as an entrepreneur, you want investors that even if they don't have the answer, they're going to help you find the answer that you need. Hello, and welcome to Funded, a podcast produced by Pixel Recess. As you know, this season, we're focused on Atlanta, talking to funders and founders about deals that get done, why, and how. This week, we're talking to Jamie Hamilton, founder of Atlanta Seed Company. Jamie spent decades investing in Atlanta. He's an interesting case because much of that time, he went deal by deal, putting together syndicates to invest in companies. Now, Atlanta Seed Company operates a fund, but I think the history of the story will be interesting. And Jamie's also the first person we've talked to who focuses solely on seed stage investments. I think you'll enjoy this. Here's my talk with Jamie Hamilton. Atlanta Seed Company was founded in July of 2016 to really focus on funding early stage, primarily technology businesses, almost all technology businesses, at what I call the traction gap. And the traction gap is defined really largely in different geographic areas. We're early in the ballgame. And what I mean by that is we're typically after a friends and family round, after maybe a traditional angel round, but we were pre-investment to what would you know normally be a series A investment. Okay. I call it the traction gap because the companies, yes, they're still early, but they have some traction. It could be revenue. In the absence of revenue, it could be user base or adoption. Mm-hmm. So Atlanta Seed Company was formed to really focus on that sector. It's a passion of mine. It's where I've spent north of 15 years investing in early stage technology businesses. I feel that we can be very helpful to businesses at that stage. And I'm glad to say we've made 15 investments over the past three and a half years. We are now operating out of a committed fund model. We had our initial close back in January of this year and we're off on the running and there's a lot of good activity to chase down. So tell me what you did before. Talk me through the history of it because you did not start with a committed fund model. So talk through why you didn't then and why you would think about it now. And Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So it's all about the democratization of how people invest. In other words, could you take this asset class, venture capital, with a large umbrella over it, could you offer that to investors without having to commit to the traditional fund model? In other words, let me spin it around. If I'm an individual investor who wants access to this asset class, there's really only a couple of ways to do it, at least historically. You could become an angel investor, which is not a bad avenue, but most angels, most successful angels tend to be very active in the companies that they invest in. They also have either expertise or experience in that specific industry. Another way to do it is to invest in a committed fund where then you give the discretion to the fund manager and they're gonna invest your dollars as well as their own into some opportunities, but you don't have any say-so in the individual opportunities for what you invest. In other words, you're handing that discretion over to the fund manager. The thesis that I had early on was, could you, someone like myself, bird dog really good deals? You have relationships with entrepreneurs. You have deal flow that you participate in. Could you bring those deals, those early stage deals, to a group of private investors and, in theory, syndicate those by forming LLCs, SPVs? We hear now people call them zero capitalists, or they, okay. they call it super angels, or they call this or yeah. that. It's zero GP, single GP. There's different ways to do that. 
And it worked. Mark, I'm really glad to say that we raised close to $15 million over a three to three and a half year period. We invested in 15 different deals and we grew our investor base from about 35 distinct individuals to over that same time frame, just slightly over a hundred investors. So explain what the benefits are to that model. I mean, that's become a somewhat popular model now, right? This sort of SPV syndicate based investing where essentially you put what looks in some ways like a little tiny fund together for a specific deal. So what what are the advantages for both investors, for you operating it, for the company? Is there an advantage to the company? Well, absolutely. It's a, an, another great question. So first of all, let me tackle it from the investors, at least what I've been told. As an investor, you like to invest in things that you know. You like to invest in things that you may potentially resonate with. In other words, if you were a LP investor of mine, I could bring you a deal and I could show you this is what the company does. This is where they're going to excel. By the way, you would even have the opportunity to meet the founders, meet the entrepreneurs, ask them questions individually yourself. It's something tangible to it. You see what they do. And in your mind, I could be attempting to tell you why I like it and what my investment thesis is. But at the end of the day, you as an individual investor that may be joining our LLC or syndicate with that, you make your own mind to say, hey, is this going to work or not? And regardless, none of us have a crystal ball, but we tend to follow things that we're passionate about. And we say, hey, I've met the entrepreneurs. I believe in this team. I think they've really got something. Count me in. I'd love to participate. I could bring you a next one two or three months later and you say, I just don't understand what these guys are doing. I think they're looking at the market wrong. This one I'm going to pass on. And that's, that's fine. When you invest in a fund, in the committed fund, instead of the tangibility of one individual asset or one individual deal, you're really investing in the concept or the theory or the idea of the fund. In other words, the fund managers have laid out parameters that say, we're going to invest in deals that feel like this. We're going to invest in companies at this stage or in this geographic area, or maybe even focused on this specific vertical, such as fintech or healthcare or edtech. The individual model, the a la carte model, if you will, offers a tangibility and investors can pick and choose. Now, one of the disadvantages to an investor is they lose the forced diversification that a fund brings. And I think that's one of the biggest advantages of a fund is that an investor, if that deal, regardless of if they really liked it, really liked the founders, if it went sideways, if it didn't work, and some of these do not, we were, we all understand that. Sure. But if some of these deals do not work, if the one you were in did not work and the one that you passed on did, then you would miss an out, you would be missing out there. We're in a fund, you have a forced diversification. Right. So it's great. Where, where your numbers as an organization, as a service, whatever you want to call it, they, they might look great overall. And my experience as an investor, if I managed to just really feel passionately about the two that, that broke even, you know, don't have the same experience. That's exactly right. And that's a struggle for the fund manager. You mentioned it. It's 15 different deals. It's 15 different mini funds. Now you may have, or I may have 65 to 75% of the same makeup, LP makeup in those. We have some investors that invest in every single individual deal that we had brought. We had others that wanted to kick the tires and pick and choose each one. What we found is it becomes tough to scale that model because what happens is the companies you funded a year or two ago, they're coming back for following funding. Largely, you want to continue to participate and keep your position in that. So you're having to go back to the investors that were in that first syndicate. It's a lot of herding cats, or like my father used to say, it's trying to get bullfrogs into a wheelbarrow. 
And it's tough. It just, over time, it, it's a tough model to replicate and it doesn't create the efficiencies at scale that you need. So right. we decided in October of last year to form the first fund under the Atlanta Seed Company umbrella. We had our first close in January. We've made two investments out of that fund so far. We're just about to have our second close. We're finally starting to get the attention of institutional investors alongside us. Right. But make no mistake, our focus is still going to be exactly as I said. In other words, it's still the same investment thesis as far as early stage investing. We want to be at that pre-A stage. We want to work with the best founders that we possibly can in industries that we know that we can help. All right, we'll get back to the fun, but bullfrogs in a wheelbarrow. Now I need to know where you grew up. (laughs) (laughs) So I grew up in a little suburb right outside of Atlanta, Georgia, a little Northeast, very close to Tucker, Georgia. There you go. That's um, Sounds like a Tuckerism. That's right. So not far. So tell me about your family and where you came from and what you were thinking you were going to do. Where'd you go to school? I went to Georgia Tech. Okay. Um, here in town. I'll be 50 next year. But I've been investing in early stage technology companies, I guess, a little bit longer than 15 years. But I was the child who, who used to look at the Atlanta paper and I'd look up stock quotes and I had my own, <laughs> I had my own, you know, play portfolio. It was largely fake money at the time, but I would track them. Hey, did you and chart I, them on like graph paper? Yeah, on graph paper. Yeah, oh, yeah. A little, almost like a composition book. And then the interesting thing is when I graduated from Georgia Tech, I thought that's what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be a retail stockbroker. I was licensed. I started the interview process, but through that process, I was interning, if you will, with a private equity company focused on exclusively commercial real estate. And I ended up taking that job and I'm so glad that I did. It it formed in me, I think, a lot of the things that I continue to uh, carry with me as covenants today. That's relationship building, working on multifaceted projects where in real estate, you've got lenders, you've got contractors, you've got LPs. And we formed individual LLCs. We had access to capital and we took a chance and and it was a lot of hard work, but to be Frank, it was probably some good luck in the first investment that we did that had a technology feel to it worked. And, you know, I'd say probably since the mid, early to mid 2000s, I've been focused on technology. It's something I love. It's a passion. It's helping entrepreneurs listening to what their vision is. It's multifaceted and it's fantastic. So when did you decide to be a more pure entrepreneur? And do you have a history of that? Is there an entrepreneurial thread that runs through you all? Yeah, it is. Uh, I was very close with my father. He's passed on now, but he had his own business also focused on commercial real estate, more on the development side. But I think spending time with him, it it taught me from a fairly early age, there are things out there. I think everybody that's in my industry is somewhat of a gambler at heart. Calculated risks, maybe very well thought out risks, certainly, but there's so much that can go wrong. And there's so much that can go wrong, whether you're investing in real estate or whether you're investing in venture. What I've learned to carry with me, Marcus, is you want to get behind good people. You want to get behind great ideas. You want to roll your sleeves up and help wherever you can. And I think if you do that and you stay very active, you have a good chance of succeeding. What can somebody else do to try to end up like you and maybe some of what they can't? Maybe some was luck or some was positioning or... I think it's all of the above. I I, I think anybody's going to have some luck and anybody's going to have positioning. Anybody may have a little bit of access to capital to start it all. I made the first technology investment before the turn of the century. For your listeners who are are maybe too young to remember, we had what's called the dot-com crash in and around 2000. And that probably opened up even more of a niche for folks who participate, at least at the stages that I like to participate. You had some angel investors who were chasing the market. And then when it crashed, it kind of went away with it 
tide. So it left a hole there for somebody like myself that was really able to fill and and to jump in. What I learned from early on in the process is where do I want to be? And it's what I talk to entrepreneurs and founders a lot as well when they're talking about raising money is, and I'm a firm believer in this, is you want to raise capital from investors who have a ton of knowledge about where you are in the life cycle of your company. You know, in other words, we're a relatively small fund, certainly nationally, even maybe geographically here to the Southeast. But that's fine with us because the amount of capital that we're putting to work in deals. They're just in their earlier stages. And there's no doubt in my mind that we can help those businesses really transformation themselves from either that seed round leading up to the A and then maybe to the B. If I had the ability to write 20 million or $30 million checks, I'm not so sure if I'm being honest, if I'm the right investor to write a $20 million check. In other words, those companies are just going to be more mature. They're further along in their life cycle. The constant is that every company faces issues. Facebook faces issues. Apple faces issues. Early stage technology companies face issues. If you're an entrepreneur or founder and you're looking to raise capital, you want to align yourselves with investors that know, hopefully have some history with it, can help you navigate the waters just where you are in your life cycle. If you want to raise early stage capital, raise it from an early stage investor. If you want to raise growth capital, seek out a growth stage investor. They're going to be more in tune with the issues you face on a day-to-day basis. Somebody wants to end up where you are and you have to give them a single piece of advice. If they want to end up being a professional investor, what's the most important piece of advice you think you'd give them? Let me answer it this way, and then I'll come back to it. There's a sex appeal to venture capital. <laughs> there always is, and it's... Um, is it real? No. It's intellectually stimulating. How about that? Right. It's... Um, it, and you are in demand. I love hearing the ideas, the vision, the creation from a younger generation, primarily, not always, but a younger generation of this is what we're doing and this is what we're building. And it's fascinating. And it, again, it stimulates that intellectual curiosity that I think we all have, but it's hard and it's tough. I think the most successful venture firms, and I'm talking bigger firms right now, they hire people where they may be weak. We all have innate abilities and we all have certain strengths that we need to focus on. But if you take the venture industry across the spectrum, you have to have people that are good at sourcing deals. You have to have people that are good at diligencing deals. You have to have people who are good at the structure of deals. So like the legal, the M&A, do we want preferred, participating preferred? Where can we step out above our campus? You need operators. You have to have people that are very good at helping that business and understanding. Structure comes back into play when you're doing a follow-on round or maybe an M&A process and then an exit. Rarely does one individual have all of those skill sets across that entire spectrum. In other words, you may have two people two or three people that are very good at sourcing deals, but can't operate. So that's what makes it tough. And if you're an individual, to get back to your specific question about how do you get into this, my advice is to try to learn as much across that spectrum as you can. There's so much knowledge out there versus when somebody like myself got started. I remember the first deal we did was common stock. I didn't even know what the first stock meant. Now it worked out and it was fine, but I had to learn that. I had to learn, and listen, on that spectrum, I'm better at other areas. I freely admit that, but I had to learn that whole process. And there's really only one way 
to do it. And that's to just jump in and get started. If you have a small amount of money that you can invest in an angel deal, our ecosystem, Atlanta's ecosystem has grown a hundredfold, maybe more than that in a relatively short period of time. This upcoming week that we have here, we have Venture Atlanta, we have Atlanta Startup Battle, we have Tech Squares, their demo day. There's so many different events you can load up. And on any given week, there's places that you can go and you can network. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to step out and say, this is one that I want to get behind. And then the next thing is don't write a $25,000 check or a $10,000 check or even a $50,000 check and then go do your own thing and tell the entrepreneur, hey, just report back to me every quarter and let me know how you're doing. Right. The way you win in this game and the way you deliver constant, strong results, building a track record is to be active in these businesses. It's where these entrepreneurs need you the most. And the most successful angel investors that I know are the ones that really become active in the businesses, not from a control aspect, but are there to help or there to understand or there to make sure that their networks are open. None of us have every answer, Mark. Anybody that tells you they do is, is wrong. But I can tell you this, as an entrepreneur, you want investors that even if they don't have the answer, they're going to help you find the answer that you need. So tell me about a specific deal and let's get into it a little bit about why it happened and what's replicable and what's not. You want a good deal or a bad deal? We can do both, but let's do a good deal first. I'll give you one that I'm super excited about. It's a current investment ours. We haven't exited the deal yet. And on paper, we've we've seen a significant return. And this business is technically not based in Atlanta, okay. although it's a business that I found while they were in Atlanta. Huh. In other words, through networking events, yeah. through some of their involvement working with other companies in town. And it's a business called The Mom Project. It's in Chicago, Illinois. Number one, what I was, what we were drawn to is, is the founder. It's female founded, Allison Robinson. She's terrific. I look back and I don't think it's a coincidence. I look back and when I see investments that were born out of a definitive need that somebody saw in their own experience. In other words, one of the first questions that I ask founders when we first meet them is why this? why this idea? And you'd be surprised. Sometimes you get really crazy answers through that, that process. But what we like to see is that an entrepreneur or founder was in a certain industry, saw an issue, decided to create a very risky endeavor, but they're going to build something that solves it because they know they can be it. Allison was an executive at uh, Johnson & Johnson with the Pampers line. She got married, she had children, and she realized that there's a lot of highly educated, highly ambitious, highly driven females out there who at some point in their career voluntarily leave the workforce for childcare. It could be for a year, it could be two years or three years, or it could be somebody who doesn't leave the workforce, but they need more flexibility within their work environment to allow for things that a parent needs to do. So she built the Mom Project, which is a marketplace. When I first met them, they were growing. They were only about a year and a half year old. We, Atlanta Seed Company, led their seed round. They've since raised a very nice A by regional and national venture firms, and they just recently closed in March of this year as Series B. It is a significant increase in value to where we participated in the A. But I look back on it, and she nailed it. She nailed it with the time. If you remember backing up from where we are now, a year or two ago, we were talking about women's diversity issues on a national scale, glass ceiling, pay equity. And even through COVID, what we've seen is flexible work obviously come to the forefront. And they were ahead of that, not necessarily thinking of a pandemic would cause 
cause the issue. But hey, if largely through the use of technology, if you can be at a house on the beach or if you can be at a house in the mountains, or you don't necessarily have to be in the office as long as you're accountable and getting your work done. So they're on the forefront of that and they've just been an absolute rocket ship as far as their growth. So we made the seed investment in December of 2017. Their A closed in December. It was a year almost to the date of December 18. And then March 2020, they closed their B at just under $100 million value. And it's continuing to grow very fast. We're co-investors now with firms like Initialized Capital, GrowTech. It's one that's done very well for us. Talk about how it came together. How did you meet her? So I met her actually here at the ATDC. Okay. Uh, Did you see her pitch or did you... And then did you reach out or was she, or did she reach out to you as part of her process of trying to find investors? So we saw her quick pitch as part of the right. engage process. And we, we set up one of the first meetings and then we spent, we were able to be in a pretty good position through that to watch them go through the platform. And then we were able to follow them to see some of the traction again, if you will, that they were getting with some of the engaged corporate partners. So what, um, what was the time between when you saw that pitch and talked to her and felt good about it? And maybe this was something you were going to do. What's the time frame between that and when you actually make an investment? I'd say probably six to eight weeks before we were ready to issue a term sheet. Okay, so not a long time. So just long enough to continue essentially a due diligence process. That's exactly right. And then probably another six to eight weeks to close on the transaction. At what moment in that process do you go tell people, all right, investors, I think we have something. Let's get together and figure out if we're doing this deal. Under the individual model we would not allow ourselves being a firm Atlanta Seed Company to issue a term sheet to a company to put our name on the line if we didn't feel confident that we had the ability to fund that deal in okay. its entire in other words, I'm sure there are people that do that though. I'm sure there are people that put out term sheets and then go raise money. Absolutely. They are. And then the typical fundless sponsor model, that's how it is. They tie a deal up. They try to create optionality and then they try to go sell it real quick. You can outdrive your headlights very quick in this industry if you do that. But I just never wanted to be in a position where we look at an entrepreneur, tell them that we're going to do a deal. And then for some reason, we're not able to bring that to completion. So in that round, was that a priced round? That was a priced round. Okay. It and was, then, uh, was there competition? Were you, were other folks trying to get into that deal at the same time? So we did not do the whole deal. It was a $2 million seed round. I mean, we did just less, just a little bit less than half of that. We let it, we issued the term sheet. We were joined by another group out of Chicago, as well as a smaller fund out of New York. And then it was rounded up by individual angels. So it was perfect. And you know, that's another great comment, just tangentially that, that we tell entrepreneurs all the time, whether we've got the full amount of capital to do an entire round. I think for companies at this stage, entrepreneurs, founders, if you're listening out there, it's beneficial to you sometimes. It may sound like it's more work, but to get more people around the table. In other words, we really look at everything from an entrepreneur perspective. And if you're an entrepreneur or founder raising capital and you raise it from one fund, especially early, you're giving basically a lot of control, even though they have a minority investor to that one fund. If you break that up, if you're raising a million dollars or a million and a half dollars and you get two different groups at 750 each or maybe three different groups at 500 each, now you've expanded your network times 3x. In other words, Atlanta Seed Company would be able to help your business in ways that another investor could not. But that other investor may be able to help in ways that Atlanta Seed Company could not. You're really starting to expand the network where you can get help as an entrepreneur and founder by spreading that out. So that was important to us. But we led the terms for the Mon Project. We led the deal. We put the terms in. As soon as we did that, everybody else started to follow through. And it was oversubscribed at the end. 
What's your stance on notes? Was there note money in that deal mm-hmm. before you came along? Yeah. So we're equity investors. Have I done a note in the past? Yes. Will I do a note in the future? Yes. I will. All things being equal, we'd like to have a priced round. I just think there's too many avenues for the investor and the founder for their interest to not fully align when you start to get notes. For instance, we looked at a deal just about two weeks ago. It's a fast growing company. They do have traction, but they've been raising money, not just in note format, but in different series of notes Mm -hmm. over the past really year. So they've got some notes with a cap at one valuation cap. They have other notes an evaluation cap that's, you know, higher than the first one. And I just sit there and I look at that and I said, gosh, it's going to take a rocket scientist just to sit down <laughs> and figure out how all these are going to convert and what's going to happen with them. And then if everybody's interests are aligned. At the end of the day, if you're an entrepreneur or a founder and you're seeking investment capital, you don't want to give any investor the reason to give you a quick no. Does that make sense? Yeah. If I'm looking at five deals at a time, six deals at a time, maybe 10 deals at a time, all maybe in different stages of, of where they are in diligence. And then here comes one that we really like, that we really think that we could help, but it's got this really crazy quirky cap table and it's going to take a ton of work to try to figure it. I may just say, you know what? It's not worth my time trying to figure all of that deal out, regardless of, of how great the business is, because we've got these two over here that are really good too. And they got a very clean cap table and I don't have to put all of that heartache into it. Notes are done. They're simpler. They're quicker. There's no doubt about that. But all in all, if you're going to have the conversation about the value cap, if you're going to have the conversation, then go ahead and set it. Get some good investors that are going to be able to help the business. They're going to be helped to not only grow from the time that we invest until the time it's ready to raise potentially more capital, but also where we want to introduce the A investors, the B investors. And that's what we're really proud of, too, is we're starting to build national relationships with larger funds that are really showing us stuff at an earlier stage. We're helping educate and show them stuff that we've already invested in. And it works. More to follow on that, but it works. On this deal, on the mom project, try to distill it down into its sort of strategic core. What of what happened in this to get a deal done with you as an investor? What in this specific process is replicable for somebody else? What's the advice piece that comes out of this deal? Well, I think something that's replicable is is obviously the persistence. And I know that's a broad kind of answer. But when you see it, when you see that entrepreneur that just has it and has it, none of us can time a deal, but the timing is right with everything. You need to jump on it. You need to act. Those are the ones where if you don't, you're going to read about it a year or two later and you're going to pull up an old email where, hey, here's the pitch deck and maybe I could have been involved. But it's also relationships. And that's probably larger than persistence is we saw her pitch, but she did her homework on Atlanta Seed Company too. And she looked at some of the past deals that we've been in. She talked to the founders that we had invested in before. And we could tell it's the founders that come to me that say, listen, we need to raise capital and we need to raise capital in the next 30 days or we're out of money. You're starting from a, a tough process right there. In other words, you're instituting an arbitrary timeline there. If you have the opportunity to meet an investor like we did with Allison and to follow her over that six or eight week period. Yes, we're doing diligence, but we can use that. We can start talking with customers that she's talking with. She's got a marketplace. So on one side, she's got the businesses she's selling to, but on the other side of the marketplace is she has the moms, the people who are looking for jobs. And the marketplace is really interesting because it's the chicken or the egg. How do you build enough supply to how do you deal with them? So what she was able to do from an early stage in that, creating a community around it and everything was really, you just felt like she had lightning in a bottle from the start. 
but she did her homework on us and we did our homework on her. And I think that's very replicable. You can do that on any possible deal. We've gotten involved with deals before where we start the diligence process and we quickly learn that we like the industry. We like the product. We think there's room for growth. We don't think that we're going to be able to mesh very well with that specific entrepreneur. And that's enough to give us pause. And a lot of times you put pause in a process and it's tough to get it back going again. What's something that you have not said to her that you should? Oh, wow. Gosh, she's fantastic. I'm, I honestly don't know with that one because we have such a good relationship that I feel like I can tell her everything. Is that common? Is that the you ideal? Know, that's the ideal. That is the ideal. Now, we've I, I've been involved in deals that maybe they did not go well, that there's certain things that you don't say. But it, as an investor, you really need to, you do become friends with the entrepreneurs. You spend enough time with them. You get to know them. You get to know their families. And you need to have, I think that's important when I give this more thought, you need to have, one of it is I'm a very transparent person. At the risk of maybe even sometimes saying too much, that's the side that I, I gravitate to. But I'm not opposed to telling somebody how I feel. And even if that's done in a nice way, but you're telling them something that's hard to hear. I think that's important. Everybody needs to have the truth, at least what you're worried about or what could be. And I think that's the only way to act. Otherwise, you'll kick yourself. If you don't say something when you think about it, you'll wish that you had said it six months six months when you finally do say it. All right. So based on what you just told me, though. What do you do when you meet somebody that you feel like, like this person knows their stuff. This is mm -hmm. a company that's got the kind of traction I like to see. They're going to make money. I would never in a million years be friends with this person when it looks like I could make money, but I don't really like this founder. I try to stay away from that, Mark. There's just too much that can go wrong. There's so much in a diligence process that you do not and will not catch. It's been a recurring theme with all of these discussions that we say, don't, don't lie. Don't lie beforehand because we'll, we'll find out. We'll how, how, how about don't steal? Yeah, there you go. Don't, it's, it, it will be found out. So we, we had an investment in a, in an early technology company where the co-founder embezzled, the co-founder stole money, you know, that was meant for the company and directed that into his or her, I'll say, private account. And it was found out. And I'll tell you this, it's not so much of the moral breach of character of doing that, which is bad enough and would have been incredibly difficult for me to get over. With. But the chasm and the fraction that that formed within the company was massive. And it was the death knell for that company. Now that company's still operating and it's still, it's still moving along. It hasn't obviously succeeded like we had hoped, but it caused a fraction between this co-founder and the other co-founder to a point where they didn't speak to each other anymore. And then the employees of the company started to follow one founder or started to found the other. So now you had two factions within the company and it got bad enough where if one founder was in the office, the other one wouldn't come in. And it was all because of very stupid decision. But I don't know how any investor or anybody would have been able to sniff that out in the normal run of diligence that you would do, right? Now, I can tell you this, the lessons that you learned from that. You want to put tighter controls in place. That's not to say that it'll never prevent anything like that from happening. If somebody's got a mindset to do it, then they're going to do it. That's why I say you've got to be active in these businesses, willing to jump in, willing to help. Maybe it's my age. If I get the sense they're not going to be coachable, then it's not for me. And I'm hopefully that whether it's intuition or anything of the sort that we could start to figure that out. I'm confident that you'll never sniff all of it out. But we do. Entrepreneurs are crazy folks. I'm one. You're one. <laughs> 
we are going to be gambling. We are going to be risky. We're going to step pretty far out on the limb. The limb may crack from the weight of us at some point, and you want some of that crazy thought. But you can have that crazy thought when you're always doing the right thing. And when you got a people that are trying to pay their mortgages that are working for you, and you got investors' money behind you, there's certain things that are absolute deal breakers that you can and and cannot do for the good of not just the business and the investors, but the employees that you have as well. So when we see that, it's something that we try to sniff it out fairly quickly. Yeah. We're the same age. I don't know if that's what it is, but I'm the same way. I cannot, if I feel that at all, like I just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. And part of me wishes in some ways that I weren't like that. Like maybe you ride that wave anyway, but I I probably wouldn't. (laughs) Yeah. It's, there's a fine line. There's no question. There's a fine line. And we all like to make money. I think that's probably a a constant as well. But at what cost to each their own on that? If I'm involved, if the name of my company is involved, we want to be doing the right thing. And and there are certain businesses where you can't get that, you know, that double top line, certainly revenue being one of them, but maybe the impact that you're having as well. And we're in a business locally here in Atlanta by the name of Bark, which certainly has a significant impact on kids and kids' lives. And this is a company that's helping save lives. And it's also a company that's actually growing very rapidly and doing very well. And that's awesome because the top line, the revenue, the KPIs, everything that they're doing is growing. And that's a fantastic CEO in Brian Basin. But they're also having a very strong impact from a social, from a maturity, from a growth aspect. So we're not impact investors. That's not something that we go after and we're not. But to the extent that you can get that double lift, right. I would throw the mom project in there also. Sure. It's it's always advantageous. Yeah, no, that world is folding in on itself anyway. As you look at capital shifts into where and the trends in the marketplace, like there's just going to be more demands from investors that people care about those things. We're not in the business of businesses to make money anymore. People care about more than just that. They care about their employees and they care about the corporate culture and they care about what happens to the environment. And that's that trend's not going down. That's not becoming less prevalent. And yeah, we'll get to a point where impact investing is not a, it's not an asset class, it's a lens. I think that's a world we're headed to more and more. Absolutely. hundred percent. And just follow the chain. Now you have entrepreneurs who are looking and seeking and asking venture firms how diverse their firms are. You have LP investors, even institutional LP investors that when they get ready to invest in a fund or to a fund manager to allocate, they want to check diversity. They want to see, are they investing in companies that do have impact? Are they socially responsible? Are they economically responsible? Are they environmentally responsible? What's the scorecard on that? So we are moving in that direction. No question about it. And it's on both sides. And overall, I think it's a very good thing. When companies are looking for money, when they're coming to you specifically, what are the biggest mistakes that you see that people don't need to be making, but they consistently make and should cut it out? Twofold. My biggest pet peeves, we touched on one slightly early, start the process early enough. Start building those relationships early enough. If I know about a company that's eventually going to be raising money in three months, four months, five months, much better. And if I look back, Mark, on the deals that I've been involved in, where we started dating that entrepreneur three months ahead of time, two months ahead of time, again, there's no pressure of, hey, we're raising money there, but we're building our relationship. I'm following the business. I'm getting a drip campaign, whether it's weekly or whether it's monthly that tells me how they're doing and the progress they're making, I can start to see that. I go back and look at my notes and say, okay, first time or two I met this entrepreneur, he told me this is what we're going to do. And lo and behold, two months later, he's done it. 
and, and, and they've accomplished this and they accomplished that. We've dated for a process when it's time to get married. That relation, it's, it's just a much easier process to do it versus, hey, you're showing up at my door and you need capital in three months or you're basically out of business. Now you've put this timeline into it where it makes it very difficult. Now, sometimes those happen. And then I think in environments, maybe on the West Coast, certainly in the Northeast, where competition is much fierce against funds, that's going to be a quicker, more compressed time frame. I, I understand that and, and I get it. And then the second thing is to really know your business and to know your visions. If you send me the deck and the presentation materials ahead of the meeting so I can be prepared, I will absolutely 100% be prepared. We don't need to go through every single slide, but be understand. I want to hear your vision. I want to hear why you started the company, where you're planning on going with it. What do you see the issues are? What keeps you up at night? Things that I'll talk about, just absolutely clear. But that's what I really want to start to dive into from this earlier stage. Where I invest, it's not enough to say, these are your KPIs and we're missing them by 20% or 25% or we missed revenue by this forecast or that. It's early. I understand there's so much that can go wrong and it's hard to forecast 30 days, much less forecast 12 months. I get it. I understand it. That's where we want to be. We love this controlled chaos and we want to be involved there with you. So don't be afraid to say, I don't know. As an entrepreneur, you can say, we think if we do this, it's going to be that way. And we hope that it's going to do this and that. But it's tough to forecast and we understand that. That's why we're here. We want to help. Those are the ones that we want to be involved in. We will fund you. We will fund Burn. We will understand that growth and hopefully get you there to introduce that next partner to you that can either provide capital. We'll help build. We'll help build networks. We'll help with introductions. But we understand it. But know where you want to go. Don't just come in blindly and, hey, this is what I think. You can sniff that out pretty easily and actually pretty swift. How do you feel about vulnerability versus bravado? I like a little bit more of the vulnerability. I appreciate the bravado. I like to see it. I actually like to see some of the, the craziness of this is where we're going. This is big. You're crazy. Right. If you tell me no, Jamie, then you're dumb and I'm going to send you an email. <laughs> I'm going to send you an email in, in three or four years and I'm going to frame it on the wall and tell you had an opportunity and you missed. I like it that they're going to be coachable. I like it that they understand there's either existing problems or potential problems down the line that they're going to need help with. And that's why they're seeking this capital. And that's why, most importantly, not just the capital, but they're seeking the other help and the other added value that goes along with that. No, I, I said it earlier, nobody knows everything. Recognizing what you don't know and either seeking help in the areas where you need that lift or you need that advice, it takes a lot of people, it takes a lot of maturity to recognize that sometimes. That's really what I like to see. I like to see that coachability. I like to see that. So I would side a little bit more on the vulnerability side, but again, that's just me. Anything you want to say about Atlanta? I continue to be incredibly bullish on Atlanta. You and I have both been around long enough to really see what this has turned into. You got Alpharetta. You have obviously what David's been involved in Buckhead. You have the ATDC and Switchyards and you have Pont City. And you've got these different pockets that are really starting to formulate and percolate. And that's the sign. That's the sign of a maturing ecosystem. I'm not saying we're mature by any stretch, but you have to have the entrepreneur spirit. You have to have places for those entrepreneurs to be, to have those serendipitous interactions. Yes, you have 
have to have access to capital across that spectrum. You got to have friends and family first, maybe angels. You've got to have early guys like me, guys that focus on either A and then guys that maybe hopefully focus on past that. So we've still got some work to do there, but it's everything is just tremendous. The entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well. The capital of the Southeast, and I just, I think Atlanta is going to be the next, certainly the next five years, next 10 to 15 years is going to be tremendous. I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we're focused here. And I think we've got a great opportunity in front of us. Congratulations to you, by the way, on everything on the studio and, and everything. Oh, else. yeah. No, thank, thank you very much. That's who we, you know, we found out that that's who we deal with, either private equity or venture backed companies that are in that growth stage. Right. Uh, and can't afford to hire the kind of cross-functional talent that you need and that we step in and we de-risk and accelerate those processes. And so like it's that. a beautiful backbone for either a post-funded early stage startup or a, we also deal with a lot of private equity back roll-ups who also need to grow and accelerate post roll-up. And yet they don't, they're not built to, with cross-functional teams with the ability to run what an innovation process is supposed to look like. And so right. that even that example there adds that sometimes if the integrations are putting two or three oh, yeah. teams together as those roll-ups go. Yeah, um, and they, they can get there, but they're not going to get there in that first 18 months or 24 months. They need somebody who can actually run that for them for while they build that piece, that capability. But that's the same thing's true for a startup that closes a bunch of money and now needs to scale and grow. And they make one hiring mistake in that process and everything is stymied because my argument from the beginning was that the six things we do are not silos. They all have to happen at the same time or none of it works. Thank you for doing this. Hey, listen, thank you. We just know where we can be helpful to a business and that's where we, right. we want to focus like a laser. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening. Please rate and subscribe. Tell your friends and we'll see you next week.